So within five days, I completely changed my mind and changed my view about the services that, that, that we provide. We're experiencing the most disruptive time in the history of healthcare. With this podcast, I'm going to connect you with industry and CRNA thought leaders to help you thrive in these unprecedented times. I'm your host, Randy Moore, CEO of the AANA. Joining me today is Tracy Young, CEO of YPS Anesthesia. Tracy is the Chief Executive Officer of YPS Anesthesia, which he founded in 2003. The company is really focused on providing exclusive anesthesia contracts to over 65 facilities in seven states, and he employs over 450 anesthesia providers. Uh, Tracy has an MBA from George Washington University and has a Master's in Science and Nursing from Texas Wesleyan. Tracy has diverse investment holdings in, inside and outside of healthcare, as well as sitting on several for-profit and not-for-profit boards. And as you well know, he speaks nationally on many anesthesia business, regulatory, and compliance topics. All right, Tracy, we are super excited and very fortunate to have you. Uh, before we kind of get into it, you know, I, I did your, your bio, which is impressive in and of itself. I'll have to say, and I've told you this before, and, I, and I'm going to take the liberty to say this again, you consistently impress me with as someone who despite everything that you have going on in your life, in, in your career, shows up and, and volunteers and dedicates your time to the profession in ways that you really don't have to do this. <laughs> I mean, and and I, 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 I'm always curious, someone with you know, your stature, your, the things that, you, you know, the balls that you're juggling, why, do you, why are you so engaged still uh, with the AANA? Why do you volunteer so much of your time and, and your expertise? Well, Randy, first, thanks for having me, and thanks for the invite to participate in, in this podcast today. I, I, I was kind of looking forward to it. It's it's not every day you get to to be on a podcast as a as a CRNA and as a business owner. Yeah. Uh, but more directly to your question, I, I just I enjoy uh, giving back to this profession because it's been it's it's been very generous to me, um, and I think CRNAs as a profession we're very very lucky. We we're we're in one. <laughs> We're in an area that in the marketplace, we're being valued more and more for the services we provide. And finally, we're starting to get some of that, some more recognition for what we do and, and how we do it. And that's extremely gratifying. Mm -hmm. and, and I just feel a lot of pride um, as a CRNA. So any chance I can to, to give back, to help in any small way, I, I look at it as a privilege instead of, a, instead of actual uh, work, if you will. That's a great segue because I, I am, you know, we, I'm really curious to get inside your head here. And, and, and you are someone who has, I think, fingers on the pulse of what's happening in, let's call it the marketplace, uh, just, just to make it interesting, in the anesthesia marketplace, right? You're seeing some trends, I suspect, around a variety of different key indicators, including the utilization of QZ billing. A, can you explain QZ billing to me in the audience like I'm a sixth grader? And B, can you tell me what the, 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 the trends you're seeing? Yeah, so QZ billing in, in its most elemental level is a modifier that's attached to an anesthesia bill, which states that the services was, were performed by a CRNA without medical direction from a physician anesthesiologist. And that's how CMS defines it in its most elemental definition, if you will. So it, it, it doesn't really mean an anesthesiologist was not involved or a physician was not involved. 
but it's strictly based uh, according to the CMS definitions that medical direction was not performed in the care and the actual services was provided by a CRNA. Yeah. And, and so correct me if I'm wrong, and I know I'm not, so that's kind of a leading question, <laughs> is that we're seeing, we're, we're seeing trends in the increased utilization of QZ. Now, the data that we have at the AANA, to be really candid, is about two years uh, behind what's happening because we're, we're getting that data from, from, from the federal government. Uh, you, I'm not asking you to divulge any, any, any of your uh, business uh, data, but you know, can you give us an overview of where you're seeing in terms of the utilization of QZ, which we think indicates an increased utilization of CRNAs in, in a more progressive or collaborative anesthesia model. That's right, and, and, and you touched on a great point. CMS is a transparent organization. It releases a lot of data, but it's always released in its last closing fiscal year. So it's typically running almost two years behind mm -hmm. schedule. So when you see trends in, in CMS data, you, you can almost extrapolate that if it's continuing in the same uh, direction, that it's happening more and more in the marketplace. And, and that's what we see anecdotally. Uh, we see it in our practice, and we're mostly in the southern United States. Uh, we're seeing a lot more utilization of QZ. But in talking to colleagues, other business owners, friends, and CRNAs, they're seeing it as well in other parts of the country as well. So it's really, it's becoming kind of the, um, the preferred model of choice, if you will, for a lot of progressive anesthesia groups that are trying to, or that are monitoring some of the compliance that's going on in the, uh, in the healthcare arena, specifically around TEPRA violations mm -hmm. and, and some of the uh, whistleblower and key TAM cases that are happening in that arena. So if anyone's following that, and if you're using a medical direction model, that there is a bit of a fear that there, there may be some compliance issues. And I, I think that's part of why QZ is growing. And the other part is just the, the utilization of manpower in anesthesia. There's, we're, we're at a supply shortage currently in CRNAs and even in physician anesthesiologists as well. And QZ really opens up staffing models to be able to utilize less providers practicing, you know, potentially practicing to the a more full extent of their scope and training. So that's just where the, where the marketplace is going and what we're seeing anecdotally and what you're seeing in, in the Medicare data from, from basically two years ago. Yeah. So I'm hearing, Tracy, is two of the big drivers here are around supply demand, provider supply demand imbalance, right? Uh, wanting to avoid uh, any kind of regulatory or I'd say billing fraud is bad typically. And, and anything that we can do to avoid that uh, makes sense. And, and then the third thing that I, I, I'm curious is to what extent are you seeing economics driving A, the utilization of QZ and B, the utilization of CRNA kind of collaborative or progressive anesthesia models? Are, are you seeing that as, as a driver as well? I am. Uh, and, and that's primarily what we're seeing within our organization. Mm -hmm. we, we do it's a lot of what's called RFP responding. That stands for request for proposal. And what that means is it's a hospital that's requesting proposals for anesthesia services. And typically when this happens, Randy, I'm sure you're aware, you're kind of given a set of guidelines that you have to follow in order to respond to this request for proposal. What we do a lot of times is that we send a couple of options. In other words, we say, here's your preferred method, which may be medically uh, directed anesthesia model. But also here's another option where it's uh, slightly more CRNA centric, CRNA focused model. And it comes with a different layer of cost because there's 
the mix of providers. It may be a couple of less anesthesiologists on the physician side. It may be one or two more CRNAs on the, on the CRNA side. When you balance that out, it may represent a cost savings to the hospital. Well, those models, when you shift to that, you're not going to be compliant with medically directed TEFRA requirements of the one to four MD supervision or medical direction over CRNAs. And a lot of times the, the clients are, are excited to see other options. They haven't been exposed to this sometimes. And when they look at it in first blush, like, well, that, that's, a, that's a significant financial impact. Let's explore it further. So mm. you're 100% correct. There, there's a, the financial implications are also a big driver in the increased utilization of QZ billing. Tell me a little bit about what you're seeing and what you think about. We've had conversations, obviously, where there are times where CRNAs are not reimbursed uh, in, at the same level of our physician colleagues. And, and that's problematic because, A, it's not right. <laughs> and, and, B, you know, it, it could potentially impact the utilization of nurse anesthetists, particularly in these models that, are, that should be more cost-effective, more efficient, and should avoid any, any billing-related fraudulent issues. I, I know that you're passionate about this, and, and, and as among a number of other people who understand the impact. But what, what do you see as, as a concern around the reimbursement issues, particularly as it relates to CRNAs? Well, the good news is that CMS recognizes CRNAs and reimburses CRNAs at the same dollar amount as our physician colleagues who are personally performing anesthesia services. So with with both providers uh, getting the same amount from CMS, that really helps to level the playing field. Where the disparity comes in is with commercial payers and even sometimes with some state Medicaids when they, um, they basically devalue the, the care that's provided by CRNAs. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is sometimes it's overt and sometimes it's covert. But when you're billing QZ, some commercial payers will not negotiate with you in good faith to get a contracted commercial rate that is equal to a physician's contracted commercial rate. The, sometimes it's actually more overt. Well, they'll have a published policy that says, okay, we'll, we'll pay for QZ, but we're only going to reimburse it at maybe 75% of the physician rate or maybe 80% of the physician rate. And in the most extreme cases, there, there's some payers in the Northeast segment of the United States that actually won't reimburse for QZ anesthesia billing. It's a $0 reimbursement. So when you think about the implication of the expansion of QZ, which theoretically is actually the expansion of CRNA scope of practice. Mm. Maybe not exactly in every scenario, but by and large, it's quite frequently associated with more autonomy of the CRNA and less medical direction from the physician anesthesiologist. So if you think of the implication of certain uh, payers not reimbursing QZ the same as a medically directed service, then you're disincentivizing facilities to switch and anesthesia groups to switch to a model that is slightly more CRNA-centric, or it could be CRNA only. Mm. And that brings up the misconception that many people have, is that they think QZ means CRNA only and no physician anesthesiologist. And while that is true for probably a a lot of the QZ billing that's done, it is not 100% true for all of the billing that's done for QZ. And we have tons of examples of that just in our, uh, just in in the, the company that I run called YPS Anesthesia, where we'll have one anesthesiologist sometimes collaborating with and being present for and to help with maybe 10 OR suites running at a time. We build QZ for those models, uh, but there is a physician anesthesiologist on site 
who's there available and collaborating with our, mm. our team of CRNAs. Yeah. I think that's what makes the ASA so nervous is because uh, about the use of Q, QZ. And, and I was, look, I've got an N of one, but I, I did, before I moved into this role, I, you know, I ran a, 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 an anesthesia and perioperative business unit in the health system in central Illinois. And one of the things that we did is we put in a QZ model and we didn't get rid of the anesthesiologist. Uh, we just re- repositioned them in terms of how they were leveraged within the, the perioperative department where they became collaborate, you know, they were, we, we, you know, they were perioperative consultants and they collaborated and we didn't, they weren't running around checking boxes all the time. And the anesthesiologist loved it. Uh, the nurse anesthetist loved it. And, and, the, and the hospital administration probably didn't know any different anyways. Right. And, and, and neither did the surgeons. But I think the fear here by the SA is that, you know, the anesthesiologist contributions are getting lost within the data because they're not captured within the data. Right. That's a, that's a hundred percent correct. The only way that someone can go back and retrospectively look at the contributions of healthcare providers in the healthcare marketplace is to look at billing data a lot of times. And if the billing data shows up as QZ only, the physician anesthesiologist has any contributions that they provide, it's blinded. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it doesn't show up in any of the data. So in in theory, they look more like just a cost center instead of a revenue generation service line. Uh, if you will, when you look at it in that through that lens, yeah. I'm curious, Tracy, around you know, the. I talked to I've, I have the privilege of talking to a lot of CRNA entrepreneurs, and I'm always trying to figure out what what is it about you and them that that allows you or pushes you forward because you start out you're taking risk, right? When anytime you start a company, you're taking risk. That's that's the downside. The upside is that you know that you could be successful, and and you think about your career. And you started the company in 2003, and here you are now, and it's growing, and probably in a way that you never predicted in 2003 when you started the company. What do you think, if, if somebody asked you, what, what was the key to your success? Or, or what are the top two or three things that you're doing well as a, as a business entrepreneur that other people would want to know about and, and emulate? What, what do you think that is? So the first thing that typically comes to mind, and, and it's always um, a little troublesome for for. Uh, folks that have an entrepreneurial spirit and want to get started in this business, uh, the first answer I say is a lot of it has to do with luck. <laughs> and uh, we don't want to hear that. <laughs> it's really nobody wants to hear that. Yeah. That's discouraging, right? right? You don't you don't want the fate of your future tied uh-huh. to luck. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of it is being at the right place at the right time, meeting the right people, and when you interact with people, how you do that, right, and what impressions you make. Mm is what sets you up for success versus sets you up for potentially, maybe not failure, but not um, not on a road to entrepreneurship, if you will, mm. where maybe you just get kind of, you know, I hate to use the word stymied because clinical practice, is, it, makes, it makes up the core of what we do, right, as, as, as CRNAs, and there's a lot of pride in that. But if you want to own a business, you have to be able to cultivate relationships and inspire trust Mm. in individuals that will trust you to lead their department, to lead their hospital anesthesia contract. And without that trust, it's impossible to get that first anesthesia contract. So you can meet the right people, but if you can't build that trust, then um, no one will really invest in you to take that risk in you as an anesthesia business owner to service their contract. So uh, I guess to sum it up is that every interaction, whether it be with a surgeon, whether it be with a patient, or a hospital administrator, a hospital administrator, is essentially a job interview, mm. right? Every time you interact with someone, is that person could be the 
the one to give you your first big chance down the road, yeah. right? And there's so many times that that we get caught up in just doing our day-to-day work and our clinical work, and it becomes routine to us that we forget that we're interacting with folks that don't really understand what we do or how we do it, yeah. and it's scary to them. Mm. So we just have to kind of remind ourselves to slow down a little bit, cultivate relationships, and uh, at the right place at the right time, if you've done that, you'll get an opportunity. And once you get an opportunity, it's a little bit easier to get the second opportunity and the third. It's the first contract in anesthesia business that's the most difficult to get because it all boils down to someone taking a risk and believing that you can do it versus someone else. Yeah. I I love that you called out, like some of this is just luck, guys and gals. (laughs) But I, I, I think... I wonder if I'd push back a little bit and say, I bet you, 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 yes, there, there is some serendipity involved, but you created the environment. You created the situation that when the opportunity presented itself, you were able to capitalize on it. So I, I think you kind of created your own, right? I mean, I, I think it is a confluence between opportunity and preparation and not to sound like Oprah here, but I, I, I think, I, I think, I think that's what it is. And, and, and yeah, it takes that first one, and then, you, and then you build your confidence, you build your skill, and then you build your reputation. I also wonder, if thinking about your career, if you're comfortable, what's something that you've had to learn or unlearn in a very painful way as a, as a leader within, within the business world? And, and you're involved in a lot of things outside of anesthesia too, but let's say, let's say you know, use it in a, the broadest sense. What I'm basically asking you in the most diplomatic way is what if you screwed up or give me an example of how you've made a mistake and, and, and how you learned from it? Yeah, that's And I think it all boils down to who we are as individuals, right? Some people are, have different character traits than others. And from, from my perspective, I'm an optimist. Mm. I'm a, I always see the future as brighter than, than yesterday was. And I think as a business owner, you somewhat have to be an optimist in, in, some, in some way, because if you're a pessimistic individual, why would you take that first risk, mm. right, to, to start a business? Because you're always going to see the dark clouds in the future. You're always going to see the boogeyman around the corner if you're a pessimist. So, so one, you, you almost have to be a bit of an optimist to be an entrepreneur. But for me, it, it's kind of it's taming that optimism, right? You can't um, – not everything is going to always work out the way you want or the way you project it to. And you have to be able to see things through – through a lens of realism, if you will. You gotta be logical, you gotta be pragmatic. You just can't be, a, it's always gonna be sunshine and rainbows because it's not. And I've plenty of examples of that throughout my career. But for me, things that typically when I've, I've messed up, it's uh, <clears throat> it's usually overestimating, right? How, how good things are gonna go or, mm. or if a situation's going bad at a hospital, I'm like, oh no, they're gonna pull through and this hospital's gonna make it. We've had, we've had two hospitals go bankrupt that we were providing services for. Uh, I don't know. I mean, statistically, we, we're hearing about hospital bankruptcies much more frequently in the last couple of years. But when you're a service provider, specifically at a hospital that's paying an anesthesia subsidy, when they go bankrupt, they're not usually current and paying for your services. Mm. They're usually three, four, five, six months behind. So early in my career, when I, I think this may be sixth or seventh hospital, where now we have, you know, we're, we're nearing 70, we're in the high 60s. We had a hospital that kept getting further and further behind. And in my optimism, and I guess it ties back into trust as well, too, I kept saying, they're going to make it. They're going to make it. Well, when, when the CRNA showed up one morning and there was padlocks on the door, 
we realized, no, they're not going to make it. Yeah. And uh, it was a, it was a large financial hit where I literally didn't get a paycheck for close to six months. Wow. Uh, personally, I just lived off the savings for that time because we paid our providers and we, we took care of the folks that did not take the risk, right? The providers aren't taking a risk in business. I am as the business owner. So it's my responsibility to make sure that they're paid. And when it goes well, great. But when it doesn't, that's, that's time where, you know, you have to step up and, and do what's right. But um, so, so that's a failure. So optimism and trust, uh, I think they go hand in hand where I, I've early on in the business really, and, and still I, I trust people, right? Everything used to be kind of a handshake and yes, we'll take care of things where now we have a lot of legal documents that go along uh-huh. with everything because, because of over-trusting people we've, we've gotten burned in the past. And so now we kind of protect our interests a little bit better, but those are kind of two areas where I have to kind of recognize what some of my character traits are and, and make sure that I'm, I'm looking at things through a more realistic lens. In business. Yeah. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. I, I, I do think, you know, what I think I've said this before in, a, in another interview is that, you know, typically strengths that are over leveraged can be, be, be a weakness <laughs> and, and that, you know, what I think what probably makes you successful in, in some respects is, is your optimism and your trust, but you, you get burnt. Right. And, 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 and it's, it's learning through that. Thinking about, you know, some of the other comments that you mentioned earlier in the podcast, we're talking about maybe indirectly some tailwinds that are going on within the profession. You know, the, the increased utilization of nurse anesthetists, increased demand for nurse anesthetists, which appear to be I think sustainable for at least the, the the short and midterm time horizon and a bunch of other stuff that we talk about in this podcast, things are going really well for the profession. Now it would, as an optimist, I'm going to ask you to put your pessimist hat on here for a second and, and think about maybe some headwinds, some things that might be a little concerning, uh, some things that we, we need to be aware of as a profession and what you might be seeing or anticipating seeing within your, within your business. Absolutely. And this is, you know, as CEO leading an organization, this is something you have to always be looking to the future. Like what potential headwinds are coming? And I really see three. And and there are two of them are actually happening currently. One of them is decreased reimbursement from, from payers. CMS in January 1 of 2021 cut anesthesia reimbursement by 3%. 3% may not seem like much, but when it makes up up to 50% of the marketplace in a lot of hospitals, that's a pretty large cut in reimbursement mm. for, for anesthesia services. You combine that with the fact that most anesthesia groups, maybe if they're if, if they're lucky, will get a ten percent profit margin on a contract. So at a three percent reduction, as a thirty percent decrease in a profit margin. You combine that headwind with the shortage of CRNA services, uh, the shortage of CRNAs out there in order to fill jobs, and we start seeing increase provider salaries, uh, increased cost of providers. And you combine the decrease in reimbursement, and you're kind of setting up a perfect storm for anesthesia companies to really uh, struggle in the in the in the marketplace. And we're seeing that the latest AANA survey showed a bump up in salaries for CRNAs. And the numbers, I don't remember the exact percentage, but it was, it was a pretty good increase. But what we're seeing anecdotally is almost a 20% increase in some locations specifically for PRN and locums providers. And we just mentioned that if an anesthesia group is lucky to get a 10% profit margin and they just got 3% less reimbursement from their largest payer and a significant increase in the inputs of the services that's provided, there's going to be a lot of turmoil in the marketplace. There's going to be a lot of anesthesia groups. And we're seeing this already 
go back to hospitals and renegotiating contracts for larger and larger subsidies. Mm. And hospital administrators don't just say, oh, man, this sounds like a tough, a tough environment for you to practice in. Sure, we'll write you larger checks. No, they go out and they look to try yeah. and find someone else that can, they can do it. Their margins, are, their margins well. are under pressure too, right? I mean, the hospitals and health systems are yeah, struggling. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the healthcare dollars are being stretched more thin every day and, and hospitals are feeling it. So I guess the end result of all this and the headwinds that we're seeing is going to be a lot more churn of anesthesia contracts. I think a lot of the churn that we were seeing five to 10 years ago was due to mergers and acquisitions mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where private equity were, was, was buying anesthesia groups. There was a lot of aggregation, caused a lot of uncertainty in the marketplaces. Uh, sometimes within three years, one facility would have three different anesthesia groups. Maybe one of them was an acquisition, one of them was a termination and a change. And then that one, the, the new one they went with, maybe was acquired by someone else again. Yeah. So within three years, some CRAs were having three different employers. And that, that's uncertainty, right? And, and no one likes uncertainty in the marketplace. Who wins Who wins in a market when there's a bunch of churn? And just so for, so make sure we're all on the same page. Churn means there's a lot of turnover in the contracts, right? So, you know, some of the large anesthesia management companies are, are losing contracts or going after each other's contracts. There is a lot of hospitals and health systems looking to the market for new, potentially new services at a more competitive price. Who wins in that environment? It's typically not the big box anesthesia groups that win. And what I mean by that is there are often um, these large national anesthesia companies. They're sometimes publicly traded companies, mm -hmm. but many of them have become publicly traded companies and have been taken back private through what's called LBOs, mm -hmm. which is a leveraged buyout. What that means in simple people terms is that there's a lot of debt associated yeah. with that business. And even though interest rates are extremely low, to service that debt requires a large amount of um free cash flow, right, uh, to be able to service that debt. The other issue with um, some of the larger companies is they have a lot of overhead. In anesthesia, CRNA and anesthesiologist salaries typically make up about 80% of all the expenses of an anesthesia group. Mm -hmm. The other 20% is uh, overhead, billing, malpractice, all the types of things that go into running an anesthesia company. And a lot of times, larger companies have more overhead, plus they're burdened with debt. So I think who wins in this environment are smaller, mid-sized regional companies that can be lean and efficient uh, and operate mm. without a lot of overhead, but also that are progressive and willing to shift to models that save hospitals. They can save subsidy payments from hospitals through running a more efficient anesthesia staffing model, which goes right back circular to the, the beginning of our conversation where we talked about QZ billing, right? They kind of it kind of circles all the way back around. It's the more utilization of CRNAs and a more CRNA-centric model that will decrease overall cost as well to these hospitals. So the groups that can do that, uh, in my opinion, are the ones that's going to come out ahead in this uh, in this marketplace with the headwinds that we're seeing. Yeah, that's great. That's very insightful. So you heard it here for those of us for our current and inspiring CRNA entrepreneurs is that there's some headwinds, there's some challenges, uh, but that comes with a lot of opportunity too. And so that's great. So I, before I let you go, I have to ask you another question, Tracy. And this is a question I stole from Dave Stachowiak, who does Coaching for Leaders podcast, which is the pound for pound, the best leadership podcast in the world. So if you're interested, check that out. And his question is this, uh, what's something that you've changed your mind about recently? Maybe over the last year or the last year and a half, what, what's changed your mind? That, that's a great question, Randy. And I, I, think, I think back to exactly 12 months ago and maybe one day. Mm -hmm. 
I was walking through the airport with my CFO and our commercial bankers called. And this was the beginning of March, 2020. And they said, hey, this COVID stuff is looking like the real deal. Mm. We're, we're talking to all of our all of our bigger clients. How's this going to affect your business? And my answer was, we're in healthcare. We're anesthesia services. We are resilient, right? People will always need our services. We're fine. Don't worry about us. You know, go back to calling some of your other clients. Five days later, we got a ban of uh, elective surgeries, uh, which cut volume down at many locations by 80%. And, and our ASCs, obviously, they were shut down 100%. They were closed for six to eight weeks. And um, so within five days, I completely changed my mind and changed my view about the services that, that, that we provide and, and how, how things can change in a hurry, uh, just despite being in a, a very resilient, almost recession-proof type of business. That there's something out there that can always surprise you and you have to be ready to adapt and change and be prepared, right? Make sure you have, make sure you're prepared for the future and that you're not, that you have a bit of a nest egg saved up. Same thing for the CRNAs who are operating in those environments where all of a sudden they were furloughed. You know, big advice, make sure you have a nest egg and, and you take care of yourself and your family because you never know what can happen. Yeah. Yeah. And the moral of the story there is healthcare may be recession proof, but it ain't pandemic proof. And so, <laughs> so uh, you know, the, the, hopefully we don't have to we don't have to uh, go through that again. But that that was really insightful, and, and I'm glad that you we're coming out of, coming out on the other end of this thing. Hopefully, in the long term, in, in a much better position. So. Me too. Uh, this has been an, an absolute pro- pleasure, as always, Tracy, to talk with you and to pick your to pick your brain. Thank you so much for for joining Moving the Needle. Well, thanks for having me, Randy, and uh, always great to have a conversation with you. Thanks again, Tracy, for joining us. And thank you to the listeners to this podcast, where we connect you with industry and CRNA thought leaders to help you thrive in these unprecedented times.